Good evening and welcome to tonight's edition of Eye on the Triangle. I'm your host, Chris Chaffee. we got a lot of great stuff for you today, and uh, I am very excited to tell you all about it. Our contributor, Nate, sat down with preacher Hugh Howell to discuss homelessness here in Raleigh. Selman has poetry. Nick and Dave have two stories about Centennial Campus and learning languages. I spoke to Jackie Landry, a Hurricane Katrina survivor. And Mark Herring prepared a story about First Friday here in Raleigh. But, but before we get to all of that... We are going to go to our trusty meteorologist, Katie Costa, for her breaking update. By the way, it is like changing as we speak, and Katie Costa has all the great details about weather here in the Triangle today. That's right, Chris. Uh, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on today. As of right now, a tornado watch is in effect for Wake County until 9 p.m., and a flash flood watch is in effect through 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. So be sure to stay tuned for any severe weather updates. Now, we saw a quick, quite a bit of rain and stormy weather today in extremely humid conditions, and this trend will continue into tomorrow. Now, all of this rain is due to the remnants of Tropical Storm Lee, which has brought a significant amount of moisture from the south. Tonight, expect temperatures to drop into the upper 60s with scattered showers and storms, so be sure to have that rain jacket handy if planning on heading out this evening. Now, Wednesday, expect isolated strong to severe thunderstorms. Now, the major threats associated with these storms will be wind gusts in excess of 50 miles per hour and heavy rainfall, which may cause flooding. We will see highs in the mid-80s, though, and lows in the upper 60s on Wednesday. Now, it looks like the majority of the rain and storms will be out of here by Thursday, just in time for the Hopscotch Music Festival in downtown Raleigh. On Thursday, expect it to be slightly cooler with highs in the lower 80s and just a slight chance of afternoon pop-up storms. Nothing too significant there. Um, Chances of storms will continue into Thursday evening, but they're going to be very scattered and isolated. Um, Expect temperatures to fall into the upper 60s. Now, Saturday... Uh, expect mostly sunny skies and highs in the mid-80s. It's the perfect day to be outside. And Saturday evening, expect a comfortable 64 degrees and partly cloudy. Sunday, we will see highs in the mid-80s with mostly sunny skies once again. But we do have a slight chance of showers in the afternoon. Expect lows in the lower 60s. So, Chris, I don't know about you, but I cannot wait for this rainy, humid weather to make its way out of here. I am ready for this nice weather up ahead this weekend. Completely, completely. And actually, I I just can't go to sleep when it's really humid in my house. I know. It's awful. (laughs) It's the worst. Anyway, uh, and actually, the next story we have is something that happened in great weather last Friday night. Um, We have a story from Mark Herring about one of the coolest things I think that happens in Raleigh uh, first Friday. Bikers fill the parking lot next to the bell tower. Friday night, as 7 p.m. approaches, more than 100 students on road bikes, fixed gears, and mountain bikes flood Hillsborough Street once the clock rings, marking the beginning of their first Friday, a citywide art and cultural exposition. The crowd is a mix of bikers, with four years of experience meandering the city streets of Raleigh looking for art, and newcomers as well. Here's some student reactions to their bike ride on Friday, September 2nd. Uh, my name is William Barnes, and I've been the first Friday since my freshman year, so I'm a senior now. So I've been doing it the whole time so far. <laughs> How many first Fridays have you done? This is my first. Really? Yeah. How do you feel? I'm excited about it. I think it'll be cool. It's going to be a lot of fun, going with a couple of friends. I've uh, probably done first Friday about 20, 30 times. I've done it every every first Friday since the end of freshman year, and I'm a senior, so about three years. Well, First Friday I've done for the past two years, and but I've never biked to First Friday. Okay, so this is like your first time biking. How do you feel about it? I'm pretty excited. So It looks like a really fun group, and it's it's like the power of bikes in numbers, so it's awesome. There are temporary bike lanes down on Hillsborough Street that we've been... The First Friday bike ride has been around since April of 2007, according to Victor Litvininko, event organizer. As a proponent to expanding bikers' rights in Raleigh, Litvinenko said Raleigh is improving its citywide policies to cyclists. All the galleries are about an, uh, a mile apart, and parking downtown is not so great on a Friday night. And they were too far away to walk, so we just uh, started riding bikes around, because it's the best means of transportation downtown. And about that, uh, with Raleigh city policy, is it friendly for bikers? It's getting a lot better. It's getting amazing. Their um, city council put through... for bike facilities in this next year's budget. Um, Bike lanes are down on Hillsborough Street temporarily. They're going down on Oberlin, on Clark, uh, a few other places downtown. So it's it's definitely coming around. It's been amazing, yeah. The mass of bikers rolls along the Raleigh streets, occasionally running red lights, 
But Litvinenko maintained that city riding is safe and improving in Raleigh, and so is the policy. Supervising this coming around of the policy is Russ Stevenson, city council member at large. All of the United States has always been very auto-friendly, and I think it's just uh, more recently that people realize there's health benefits of biking. There's uh, just people who don't have driver's licenses, young or old, who'd like to get around other ways, and bicycles are one of those ways, along with public transit and so forth, and sidewalks. And so our city has been trying to be very proactive in, in promoting all the new ways other than burning fossil fuels, uh, you know, including transit, uh, there goes a bus, uh, as, as other ways to get around and actually be able to grow the city without being completely dependent on adding thousands of cars to get from point A to point B, from parking lot to parking lot. So this bike uh, event is a good example of people saying, wow. After riding down Hillsborough Street, riders make their way on Morgan Street, heading towards the Rebus Sports Gallery. This next segment was recorded on a bike, so bear with the audio from the wind. So what's your name and how often do you do First Friday? My name is MK Ward and I do First Friday, I've done it like four or five times before. Okay, and do you always ride your bike down there? Yes. Um, I pretty much just follow the crowd, I don't like planning, so I really like um, Rebus. Um, and I like fish market. Okay. It's a good one. But you pretty much go with the flow? Yeah, I go with the flow. I go with the crowd, and I like being part of this, like, bigger community of cyclists. It makes me feel part of something bigger. It's not just students who get involved in the bike ride, but people from all ages and walks of life. What's your name and what's your dog's name? Uh, Everett Winslow, and my dog's name is Maximilian Santiago Bartomeu's Tiny Pants. Okay, so, uh... Why do you bring Mr. Tiny Pants to uh, First Friday? Well, actually, I take him everywhere I go. Um, he goes to the office every day. Um, if I go to meetings, sometimes he goes with me. I took him zip lining. He, just, he goes everywhere. At two and a half pounds, it's easy to take him with. Exactly. And so what type of dog is Max? He's a Maltese. Okay. And uh, has he gotten used to just going everywhere? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He's the easiest dog in the world. Does he like art? You know, I think he's an art aficionado. I mean, I talk to him on a regular basis, and he says, Daddy, when is First Friday? So, And I tell him, I say, it's coming up, Max. Just relax. Just relax. So instead of Max cajoling you to go down that First Friday, why do you go? Um, I like the camaraderie. I, I like the art, but usually what I do is I end up going back to the galleries later, and then I go back to see the art, because there's so many people that I rarely go in the galleries. So I just like to hang. If you're out of shape, start training for next month's ride. From I on the Triangle, I am Mark Herring. And now a story from our newest contributor, Nate, about homelessness here in Raleigh with the Reverend Hugh Hollowell. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of the world, and welcome to Eye of the Triangle. This is yours truly, Nate G. Today in this segment, we will be talking about homelessness in the Raleigh area and what one man is doing to make a difference. Now, whether you're walking down Hillsborough Street, Morris Square, or any other place in Raleigh, we all have seen homeless people. And let's be fair, we normally don't want to be bothered when we see a homeless person. Uh, maybe we're meeting someone, we're in a hurry, or to be quite honest with you, some of us are just afraid to talk to homeless people. But today, we're going to change that. Today, we're going to discuss how you can help in homelessness. Today, we're going to raise your attention to the core issues resulting in homelessness. And for that, I'm joined by a very special guest of mine, the Reverend Hugh Hollowell. Now, Hugh is a preacher here in the Raleigh area, as well as the founder and CEO of Love Wins Ministries. Love Wins is a nonprofit that works specifically with homeless people here in the Raleigh area. The neat thing about Love Wins is not the fact that they work with homeless people, but the approach and the methodology they use to help make an impact. Hugh, how are you doing today, buddy? I'm great, Nate. Now, homelessness can be classified as many different types of problems. Some would say homelessness is in part a result of the tough economy. Others would say it's a reflection of social and economic inequality. 
Hugh has a bit of a different perspective. Homelessness is at its core a relationship problem. Ladies and gentlemen, don't you go anywhere. Turn up those dials on your radio and let's dive headfirst into this issue. Once again, thank you for joining us on the program today, Hugh. We really do appreciate it. Uh, talk to us a bit about why you decided to get involved with Love Wins or why you decided to start it up and, and get involved with helping homeless people. There's kind of two answers to that question. The, the first one is, is that as a minister, as a, a person of faith, I'm heavily motivated by the example of Jesus. In the Gospels, we see how we treat uh, the marginalized, how we treat uh, the, the disenfranchised, how we treat those people who have been left behind by society is, is a key factor in our faith. And so as a follower of Jesus, I was naturally drawn uh, to that community. And which leads us to the second part is that I started, when I first moved to Raleigh almost five years ago, I started volunteering with some different homeless organizations. And what I discovered is that there's a lot of organizations that if you're hungry, they can get you a sandwich. Or if you need a job, they can get you a suit so that you can go for an interview. But what we didn't have was somebody who was willing to eat a sandwich with you. We didn't have someone willing to drive you to Social Security and sit with you and help you negotiate the paperwork. In other words, what was missing, uh, quite frankly, was the relational aspect. It's interesting you mentioned that the relational aspect was missing when you were volunteering with other organizations. Uh, is that relational aspect something that sets you guys apart with your nonprofit, or what exactly is it that makes you guys different? Quite frankly, how Love Wins is different from your typical homeless ministry is that we work primarily in the context of relationship. Now, that's twice now, Hugh, that you've mentioned the R word, relationships. And that's a key word that often gets overlooked when discussing homelessness. Now, I've checked out several websites talking about why people are homeless. And, of course, the obvious issues include foreclosures, poverty, a lack of work opportunities, and a decline in public assistance. Other factors include a lack of affordable health care, domestic violence, and, of course, addiction disorders. But I don't see many people focusing on the relationship building process. And of course, when you talk about relationships, it makes me think about my network of family and friends. And I got to say, there is something very empowering about having a support group. There's something empowering about having a group of people I know I can depend on in both tough times and the best of times. Now, I'm a firm believer that when you see the best in others, it tends to bring out the best in them. And oftentimes I see homeless people and they don't have that support group. They aren't looked upon the same way we view our family and friends. And granted, anyone can give a handout, but it doesn't help solve the problem. And as you mentioned earlier, who is going to be there to eat a sandwich with you? Who's going to be there to listen to you when you have a tough situation? Who's going to be that support for you? So I'm curious to get your thoughts, Hugh, on this topic. And, and why don't you talk a bit about why you think the relationship-based aspect is important? You know, Nate, when I look back and I think about the best days I ever had, on those days I wasn't alone. The thing that made those days my best days was the fact that I had someone with me. Homelessness is at its core a relationship problem. If you doubt that, think for a minute about if for some reason you couldn't go home today or if our listeners couldn't if their wife or their husband or partner threw them out, you already know the people you would call. I mean, you've already, you don't even have to think about it. You know that first you'd call him, and then you'd call him, and then you'd call her, and you wouldn't get four people down the list before you'd have a place to stay tonight. So it is the people in your life who stand between you and homelessness. So when you see people who are homeless, you see people who do not have who either don't have or who have burned through those relationships. And so, um, if that's true for me, and it's true for you, it stands to reason it would be true for homeless people as well. Now, you know, Hugh, we can't talk about homelessness without asking the million-dollar question, how do we end homelessness? So why don't you tell us a bit 
from your perspective of how do we end homelessness? It's interesting that you ask me, how do we end homelessness? In Wake County, on any given night, there's 1,200 homeless people, give or take. So that means if we could find 1,200 beds, we've ended homelessness. I'm not asking for a show of hands or for people to call in, but I bet just the people listening right now have 1,200 empty beds in their house. I know I've got a room in my house with a bed in it, no one's sleeping in the night. You probably do too, not to put you on the spot. So the question isn't, how do we end homelessness? Because we could end it tomorrow if we wanted to. The question everyone wants to know is, is how do we end homelessness without us having to change? How do we end homelessness and I get to live my life exactly the way I want to? And the only way we're able to see it that way is because we see homeless people as fundamentally different kinds of people than I see you. Hugh Hollowell, ladies and gentlemen. Now, Hugh, I didn't realize there were roughly 1,200 homeless people a day here in Wake County. And especially when you talk about 1,200 homes having some spare room, it definitely puts the homeless problem in a little bit of a different light. Man, could you imagine what would happen tomorrow if 1,200 people each took in one homeless person and offered them a place to sleep? Could you imagine if we each took in one person and just got to know them a little bit better and built those relationships? It's amazing, but I guess I'll keep on dreaming. Now, Hugh, we're going to have your final thoughts here in just a second, but I want to throw out a quick statistic myself for our listeners. Now, I'm pulling this information from nationalhomeless.org. And according to the data, in 2006, on a national average, monthly rent for a one-bedroom apartment rose to $715 per month. Now, to put that into some perspective, that is 113% of a person's supplemental security monthly income. Now, for those who don't know, supplemental security income is a government program that provides stipends to people who are either 65 years or older, blind or disabled. So basically what this data is telling us is that it takes all of this person's salary or stipend, excuse me, plus 13%, an extra 13% that they probably don't even have just to pay their housing rent. And we haven't even gotten to food, toiletries, and healthcare yet. So I just wanted to throw that out for the listeners out there just to give some perspective of how tough it is for homeless people. And I understand it's tough for us as well who do have homes, uh, but it it is really tough in this economy out there. Uh, Hugh, your final thoughts? As a Christian minister, my faith tradition tells me that all of us are made in the very image of God. Um, That means that Uh, The homeless man under the bridge drinking a tall boy a beer is just as important to God as Mr. Smithers at the bank. And it's because of that work, because of that idea that we started doing the work of Love Wins, Um, because that is the message that people of faith need to understand is that we can end homelessness tomorrow. Uh, We have the resources. We have the money. Um, There's over 1,200 congregations of different people of faith in Wake County. If every congregation merely took in one homeless person, we've ended homelessness. Um, this isn't a huge problem. It's only a huge problem because of our unwillingness to address it. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, Hugh Hollowell. We want to thank you again, Hugh, for joining us on the program today and for your insights that you shared. Uh, For those interested in learning more information about Hugh and what Love Wins is doing, you can check out the website at lovewins.info. Once again, that's lovewins.info. Before we end the segment, I want to leave you with a quick story. Back during the middle of July one day, I was on Hillsborough Street and it was around midday. I saw this young lady walking down the street and the homeless man was following her trying to get her attention. She eventually stopped and asked to be left alone because she didn't have any money or anything to give him. The homeless man said, ma'am, I wasn't trying to ask you for no money. I just want you to know that I ain't going to cause you no harm. I'm not going to bite you. I'm a person just like everybody else. You don't have to be afraid of me. 
The young lady said, thank you, but she had to go. So after she walked off, the homeless man approached me and said, brother, I ain't going to hurt nobody. I just want to be respected. Ladies and gentlemen, don't we all want to be respected? Don't we all want to be looked at in a certain way? Shouldn't we view homeless people the same way we look at our brothers, the same way we look at our sisters, the same way we look at our mothers, and the same way we look at our fathers? We may not be able to end poverty tomorrow or solve the job crisis problem, but we can show and give respect to every person. With Eye on the Triangle, this has been yours truly, Nate G. Thanks, Nate. And now we shift gears a little bit. Now, in our short lives, the biggest hurricane that we've been witness to is Hurricane Katrina. New Orleans' population has never fully recovered from the mass exodus that occurred in the aftermath of the storm. And one of those former residents of New Orleans is now living here in the Triangle and working at NC State. I spoke with her the other day about her experience during the storm. Well, he was an indoor-outdoor cat, and he knew better not to use the bathroom in my house. And he came to uh, wake me up right in my round, wake me up in his, to get and let him use the bathroom. So when we did open up the door, man, rain was so long, white raindrops. And the trees seemed like they were bawling, you know. And the wind was howling and the thunder was like a 747. So I said, well, what are you going to do? Are you going outside? Or what? My cat looked at me, I looked at him, and then we looked at each other. And he actually said, nah. <laughs> That's Jackie Landry, a Hurricane Katrina survivor. She now works in the Tally Student Center at NC State. But she was living in New Orleans when Category 5, Hurricane Katrina, chewed through town on August 29, 2005. Storms make Miss Landry sleepy. She was in bed when Katrina came through the front door. I had a big old opening for a door. And that's when a soft, crisp voice came to me and said, you better get out of here. It's time for you to go. And I just said, oh, love, what am I going to do? And he turned the storm to a mist, and he allowed me to run across the street to a friend of mine to knock on her door and ask her to let me in. And so it was a whole lot of crying and a whole lot of praying. So God put this song on my heart so that I won't cry anymore, you know. And the song went like this. Don't you know that I sing, 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 because I'm happy. Don't you know that I sing, 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 because I'm free. His eyes are on a sparrow, but I know he's watching me. The damaging winds destroyed property and homes, but Katrina's powerful storm surge punched 53 holes in the levee system. It submerged about 80% of New Orleans. We didn't know it was going to be that bad, but the reason why it was so bad is when the levees broke. That's when it caused, and by me living in the last ward in the city, everybody think New Orleans just flooded out at one time. But it didn't. It took a days for it to come to my house. And we could look down the street, and I could see this water coming down the street like a snake. We spent one night there, you know, and the next day the water was getting higher and higher and higher. So we had to get out of there. Almost all of Miss Landry's belongings were destroyed. Her daughter had already left the city before the storm, and now it was time for her to go also. She said goodbye to the roofless building that used to be her home and joined a group of neighbors that were headed out of town. Eighteen of us left in the neighborhood where I come up at, and uh, we all got together since they told us that we had to leave, you know. And we had like three good run running cars, and the guy named Mr. Wallace took us up, up to his his father-in-law in Mississippi. And the first ride lane that I got on was in Brookhaven, Mississippi. So once we got up there, 
he had all his family people. They cooked and served us food, and I mean the food was delicious. Then, like, the next day, they had opened up his church where we can sleep and stuff, the people that had came from the storm. And Mary, she had lived in New Orleans for 16 years herself, and she called her sister, and her sister lived in Greensboro, North Carolina. Before the government, before FEMA or Red Cross, it was mainly the people that was helping us to get out of there. Now, Greenboro knew we was coming up there. And once we got up there, I thought I was a queen, the way they had treated me, you know. And money was no object. I didn't need no money. You know, anything I thought I wanted, they gave it to me. So we got there, and I called my family. They were in Dallas, Texas. And I knew I had a cousin that lived here in North Carolina, but I didn't know what city he lived then. So once I called my brothers and found out where he was, I gave him a call immediately. And the call, I didn't haven't seen my cousin over 15 or 20 years. And I didn't know the difference between Riley during a chapel here. So what I did, I called the operator and she gave me the number to my cousin, and I told the first Raymond and Jackie Searles that she looked up was my cousin, and I hadn't seen him in over 15 or 20 years. Once I got in contact with him, he brought me up here to Raleigh. When Miss Landry got to Greensboro, she didn't know where her daughter Italy was. It took 29 days to find her, but the Red Cross reunited them in one day. Now it's 2011. Italy is a senior at Enloe High School, but Miss Landry hasn't forgotten where she lived for more than 50 years of her life. The water is gone, but Katrina is still there, you know. They still had those old houses that was flooded out just standing, just standing. And it seems like it's a slow process for the city to do things, you know. But since I've been living here in Raleigh, I can't understand it. Raleigh had built buildings since I've been here, and they can't build homes for us to go back, you know. Do you want to go back? Oh, yes. I left my heart there. But I'm doing better up here. This is where I'm supposed to be, the time of my life. I'm doing very good up here. Mm-hmm. Ryan the Triangle, I'm Chris Joffey. One of the biggest businesses on Centennial Campus, Red Hat, is moving out. And Nick and Dave were there to check out what was going on on Centennial Campus. Last week, software company Red Hat announced that it would be moving from its current location on Centennial Campus to downtown Raleigh. Michael Harwood, Associate Vice Chancellor for Centennial Campus Development, came in to discuss the impact this move has on NC State. Could you describe what Red Hat is and, and what they do? Certainly. Red Hat is a software company. They've had their world headquarters on Centennial Campus for a long time now. They moved in, I think it was about 2001, and they've been looking for over a year now for a place that they think can accommodate their next level of growth. Okay, so the spaces offered by Centennial are, I guess, they're outgrowing it. Exactly. So you've known that they were going to be leaving Centennial for about a year? We've known that they've been looking for solutions to their needs, and we've been trying to see if Centennial Campus could accommodate those needs, but it became clear in January when they made their announcement that they were looking at a lot of other opportunities, and so the announcement last week was disappointing, but not surprising. And what kind of efforts has the university been making in terms of trying to get Red Hat to stay on campus? Well, we've not been able to offer any financial incentives, and so that kind of put us at a bit of a disadvantage, but what we focused on is what we call the partnership, meaning that the company and the university agree to partner in a number of ways. It could be hiring our students. It could be conducting research with our faculty. could be sponsoring some kind of joint research programs. And Red Hat has done all of those things. And so our attempts have been focused primarily on ramping up that partnership so that even if they didn't stay, that we would be in better position to continue to work with Red Hat to help solve some of the challenges that they face as a, as a growing company. The university does plan to maintain those partnerships with Red Hat. Absolutely. Red Hat's been an important partner for the university, and we expect that to continue for, for some time. Is there any specific partnership that stands out that you want to describe for us? Um, 
there's one in particular, and, and it's called the Oscar Lab, uh, but it's a lab on Centennial Campus that's paid for by Red Hat, but jointly used by NC State and uh, an institute that looks at open source issues related to cybersecurity, that that's one example of where they've been collaborating with the university trying to solve those problems. Gotcha. So how many other businesses are there on Centennial Campus? There's about 65. Wow, okay. So what kind of changes does Red Hat leaving bring to that? Well, there's a lot of pent-up demand. Right now, there's a lot of companies that have been saying, I want to expand, but we've only had between three and 5,000 square feet available. So this will give us an opportunity to get some of these companies that are smaller or mid-size to continue to grow. So while Red Hat is leaving us, it may also help give opportunities to other businesses to expand and stay on campus with us. Absolutely. That's the silver lining in this whole transition. But as I've said to several people, it's not unlike sending your child off to college. You're really proud of their accomplishment, proud to see them go, but you really kind of miss them. So that's sort of that same <laughs> feeling with, with Red Hat. We're, we're hopeful that they see that we've been a big part of their success but we're really proud that, that they're able to kind of move to the next level, and, and we absolutely wish them the best. So you're saying you're going to offer that space to the other companies down there? I, no doubt in my mind that there are a number of people that are on campus already that want to expand, but there's a lot of companies we're beginning to see, and companies are still looking for opportunities and really looking to expand what they're doing and be more effective and more efficient at their particular uh, line of business as it aligns with different academic strengths we have. So what are the other types of businesses that are also down there on Centennial? Well, there are a, a heavy concentration of software, IT kinds of companies. There is um, some electrical um, distribution, for instance, ABB out of Switzerland. There is USDA, a government agency. They've uh, been working very closely with our College of Agricultural and Life Sciences right next to them so that they can really collaborate on those kinds of issues. We also have Griffles Biotherapeutics. So that's just a handful of a number of companies that are there. Like I say, there's, there's about 65 small, medium, and, and large, although Red Hat is one of the, the larger companies. And so do you guys have your eye on any particular company that may become larger like Red Hat did? Well, there's there's a number that we hope. we uh, WebAssign is um, headquartered on Centennial Campus, grew out of technology here at NC State. Uh, we think maybe uh, Griffles would want to, to grow perhaps. I think we're seeing a number of people realizing that, oh, maybe I can stay on Centennial Campus and I can continue to grow. I don't need to look elsewhere. Testing. 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 You are listening to Soma's Poetry Corner on I Am the Triangle. Every person has a story to tell. How they tell it differs. Poets are artistic, unique, and bold individuals who stand up in front of a crowd just to tell their story. Their only hope is that you're listening. So I've met up with local artists so that they may share their stories with you. I'm CJ Suit from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I'm 24 years old. So how did you get into poetry? My journey with poetry, I guess, begins, and it took me a long time to realize this, but in going to church and growing up in like a Southern Pentecostal setting where like preachers and ministers were getting in a pulpit and like creating metaphors and storytelling and using all sorts of literary devices that I don't even think they realized they were using like from the pulpit to explain like Bible stories and like um, sort of relations like between folks and characters within those stories. And, and so, and especially with like something like so passionate, like in, in such a passionate way. And so seeing that happen um, was real inspiring for me. Um, but then I also had like a, like, my mom took me to church all the time. My dad was always playing, like, hip-hop in the car and, like, beatboxing and, like, playing Curtis Blow. And then, But he also played, like, Luther Vandross and, like, love songs and all sorts of, like, love R&B ballads and things like that. And so I grew up, like, writing these, like, love songs to girls I had crushes on in middle Aww. school and, like... 
you know, writing these rhymes and different things like that. Um, mostly songs and love songs at first. And from that in high school, I really like had the attachment or, or began to call it poetry. Um, my brother was really the poet, like growing up, like when we were younger, younger, like elementary, middle school, my brother would write these amazing poems and I would like add like harmony to them and like I would read them and like sing them out loud. And so I was actually a songwriter for a long time before poetry came into the picture. But then like high school, I started writing rhymes and like my teachers were like, yeah, you need to do this poetry like thing, like come perform at this at this event and then from high school probably like ninth, tenth grade in high school it just kind of like took off and I haven't really looked back like poetry was the thing that I feel like I was the most appreciated for and so it's what I've been doing for at least like 10 years now in my life. So I understand that every poet will have a different way of writing their poems. Can you tell me about your writing process? So I guess my process for writing poetry is different depending on the piece. Um, So I've had some pieces that I've written a friend of mine went to Malawi um, and came back and brought me pictures and, and audio recordings and was like, can you write something? Um, and I literally like sat down with like those recordings and like my bed like covered in these photos and for like days and days, like looking at them, like really just trying to like be there, experience it as much as I could. And from that, like after probably like two, three weeks time, I had like created a piece from that. Um, so that was the process for that. But normally if I'm like writing about myself or something that I'm just interested in writing on, um, I'll start a, a piece or have a concept or like a first couple lines and I'll just keep dwelling on that, keep thinking about that and write pieces like here and there everywhere, like in and between like my notebook and then my phone, like I'll be like writing down um, different parts to it. Um, but I, you know, it's the process is different for each poem. Sometimes I just go into it and, and write, and sometimes you know it's it's conceptual. Um, and I'll get like two lines, or I'll get like four lines first, and I'll be like, oh my god, yeah, um, we got to do something. We got to do more with that. Um, I wrote a poem called Chapel Hill, and the first four lines that came to me um, was, "I live in a wonderful little college town where true feelings are glossed over with PC wax." like the floors and hospitals, all that came to me at one time. And I was like, oh, we got to finish this. And so like that like concept kept being repeated throughout the piece. And that's kind of sort of how it went. I also believe that writing is a place that comes not necessarily from me, but from like divine inspiration. Um, poetry is a very like divine and spiritual art form. Um, a lot of the things I've written down, I haven't really understood until like four or five months later when I'm doing the poem and I'm like, oh man, dang, that line could also mean this or somebody's taking that line, it's like this. Or like, wow, like that was deeper than like I even thought about it being. Um, so I think in a lot of ways when I write, I'm channeling something from somewhere else. A lot of times I say like the personal, like our job as poets is to make the personal universal, but I think inherently the personal is universal. And, and in poetry, we show people that that like what I'm going through actually like you're going through it too <laughs> you just didn't see it like pointed out in that way or like it took a few metaphors like for you to understand it like wow wow I, I struggle with those same issues I go through those same like problems and I have those same concerns and so I think you know and understanding that you know we believe in like higher powers God the universe the great spirit whatever you want to call it you know Allah anybody you know, so like, but in believing in that, I think us understanding that there's a certain universal effect to the way we interact with one another is deeply like in poetry and, and poems and the things that we write. Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah. Poetry's kind of spiritual for me. It's something that I feel more so than is really technical. You know, more than it's something like I technically put together. I think sometimes that comes into play. But when I really feel like I'm in the groove and I'm writing something deep, you know, I totally feel like it's coming from somewhere else. Yeah. So that's that's sort of my process. So what are your greatest influences when it comes to writing your poetry? I think I've been influenced majorly by, you know, the the speakers, public speakers um, in my life and in my world that I grew up around. But I also think as far as poets are concerned, like, cats who spoke up for 
people's rights and issues and humanities, people like Amiri Baraka, Sonia Sanchez, all these cats, even like down to Black Panther folks, you know, all those folks who like Stokely Carmichael, all all those people who like spoke up Huey Newton, all those people who spoke up for the, the benefit of the people. Because um, I think that's what we're doing. I like go to marches and rallies and different things now. And I think there's a difference in us speaking about issues and us speaking to, to the people and understanding that like these ain't just issues. These ain't just like it's not just gay rights or gay marriage. It's not just poverty. It's not just like issues of education, but there are like people and faces behind these issues that we're talking about. And it's not just, we need more jobs. We need more health care. We need more education. No, like my son, my like cousin, my nephew is like suffering in this school system because we as adults can't stop arguing about what's right and listen to like what his issues are. And knowing that and being in so many places where I've seen amazing, powerful people get up and stand up in front of a group of folks. People don't listen because it's this like, we need to do better. This is what's wrong. Whereas I feel like if us as public speakers and, and those folks who are like speaking to issues can be like, look, this is what's going on with me. And I know it's what's going on with you. You know, we're all here. for this. Like, I know you're going through like issues. This is my story. And I think through that people, and I think that's why people find poetry and like, and slam so connecting and so such a powerful thing because it's like here's my story, and I know you can find your story somewhere in it. So let's like work together and make change. You know, honestly, like I'm inspired by people who can see that, and it's not just it's not about um, a label or a title or where you stand or your position in an organization outside of an organization within the movement. It's really about like this is my story. Let's let's create a, the world we want to see. And so you know, I'm inspired by people. By the folks on the front lines, I'm inspired by the dream team. I'm inspired by like all sorts of folks, like you know, the Muslim Student Student Association. I'm I'm inspired by all those people who are like standing in a place that like is often denied them, and standing in that space like in spite of what people have to say, um, and speaking up despite like the culture of silence that we live in. Now I understand you have a piece for us for Pitt today. Can you tell me a little bit about it? This is a piece I wrote about um, poetry and. Sort of my relationship with it, I dropped out of college in order to start um, Sacrificial Poetry Organization probably about four years ago, maybe five years ago now. It's been a really long time. But, you know, I got a lot of critiques for that and, and, and a lot of folks who thought I should do something different. And so I had wrote this piece um, kind of sort of in response to those. All right, let's hear it then. This is CJ Seed's poetry. Life knows me too well. From the minute I burst from her shell, I just yelled. My first memory consists of a last kiss and a death wish, a fading photograph and a cracked concrete epitaph that reads, when my outer is ugly. It's my heart that laughs last, patiently waiting with pen and grasp. I clutch the last bits of liquid sanity, ink, and pen a permanent self-fulfilling prophecy like laugh now, cry later, but I really wrote in reverse, cry now, laugh later, because when I am old, my feeble soul may need the medicine of laughter when it's mind over matter of fact that I am more than just a bad joke played on a 1986 record and my pen glides like a bald eagle with Parkinson's. It gets a little difficult to write in the silver lining in my art. There's a kite string of a dream crash landing face down in a stream of consciousness rescued by a pen and pad revived by a poet. The poems, my patient, imagine diving headfirst into an ocean of oration, a synapse full of gray matter in my first memory. I'm a poet. Full of all the issues and baggage in the world like a shopping mall, a suitcase tongue, air my laundry under the spotlight so I can dress clean in the audience, pack light to keep my skeletons clothed, to make sure metaphors and similes fit overhead, not go overheads. Each morning I wake up sober or dead every day is a rebirth. We must die in order to appreciate living fall, in order to develop the balance to stand. My hands are cracked with carpal tunnels, road mapping the universe. This is the truest verse I ever wrote. Me taking notice of my notes, written in the margins of high school papers, playing as the soundtrack to college lectures. This world has taught me I would be forever lost if off the college course. Diallo taught me that upon giving in, they will one day dance on my conformist corpse. So I dance to the soundtrack, bound back in 
in decibels of defiance resounding loud as rolling seas or 623 on a Tuesday morning born. Black skin so heavy with history, mama says my cry sounded more like a freedom song or black power poem sprinkled with innocence that a month before I was kicking prenatal nursery rhymes in the workshop of her womb. Water broke like Franklin County Creek water baptism on an uncomfortable swimmer. I said water broke like Franklin County Creek water baptism on an uncomfortable swimmer when she held me for the first time. My back cracked like the spine of a book. She carried me for nine months before she was able to see section. She never knew she bleeds so much from a paper cut every day. Is a rebirth. This poem has chosen me. These poems are choosing me. They are strumming my vocal cords in Santana sonnets, a black magic mantra, soundtrack to my life. The quarters of the classroom too cacophonous for the rhythm of soul to paper cadence. So I pumped up the volume on my voice that marched military meter against the mainstream good intent artillery fought stigma with stanza. My first memory consists of a last kiss to the ivory tower. And a death wish in the hopes of being reborn with a true appreciation for my gift in spite of the rumors of a fading photograph future. And I am standing at the cracked concrete epitaph of a capitalist scheme that teaches me to think outside in but a pen. Taught me what it really means to be free. I chose my weapon as wisely as it chose me. Thank you so much for sharing your story, CJ. I hope you inspire others just as much as you inspire me. I'm Selma abdul with Eye in the Triangle, and you are listening to Selma's Poetry Corner. WKNC 88.1, and thanks, Selma, for that. You are listening to Eye in the Triangle. We have one more story for you today. It's from Nick and Dave, and it's about learning a language, because learning a language can be hard work, and some people do it better than others. Nick and Dave wanted to go find out why some people's brains work better for learning languages than others, and how we learn languages. We invited Walt Wolfram, the William C. Friday Professor of English Linguistics, into the studio to discuss dialects and language. So could you give us a brief overview of the process by which we learn our first language in childhood? Basically, kids learn their language by exposure to language. A lot of parents sometimes think that they have great input and that if they didn't directly teach their kids that they wouldn't really learn language. The fact of the matter is all you need to do is just throw them in with people who are talking and their innate mechanisms for learning language will be activated and they'll be fine. Okay, so more specifically, what factors contribute to the particular language or dialects that we acquire? Well, if you throw kids into language situations where there are varieties of language, they're going to pick up their peer language. My kids don't speak the regional dialect that I spoke they'll speak more like their peers. So even though parental input is important, in effect, they'll mold and model their language variety after their peer cohorts. So the dialect is primarily formed by interaction with their peers? Basically, it's all about peers. So how is the process different for an adult, either picking up or losing a dialect? Is it even possible? It's difficult for for adults to completely pick up a second dialect, they can make modifications. Lots of uh, Northerners learn y'all, and they might even learn double modals like she might could do it. But in reality, once we reach puberty, our language learning devices are pretty much set, and so it has it takes a lot of conscious effort. Of course, some people are better mimics than others. Some people are more socially motivated to talk like the people around them. So there are a lot of social and psychological factors but in reality, if you come, for example, to North Carolina and a particular dialect area of North Carolina after puberty, good luck. You'll never be a native speaker. So what's the ideal age to pick up a dialect? As early as possible. I mean, the fact of the matter is, from the get-go, kids start learning the dialect. Of course, as they get older, they become more sophisticated and learn some of the grammar of the dialect. But in terms of their early pronunciation, they get right into the dialect. So the vowels that they learn will be southern or northern or wherever the particular region is where they are, are socialized. Now, we've heard the key phrase dialect awareness. Could you tell us what that is? Well, dialect awareness is, is a program that we have around the state. We teach it in eighth grade in the schools. What we're trying to do is sensitize people to understand more about dialects, how they're part of the sociocultural heritage of North Carolinians. The fact of the matter is 
that few states have as dialect heritage as rich as North Carolina. Why not study it when you study about the culture and history of the state? So how aware do you usually find that students or adults are of their dialect? Well, people always hear dialect differences. The problem is not uh, the recognition because if someone moves into an area, you immediately notice. The problem is that we often think it's a matter of stupidity, of not learning how to speak. So what we're trying to do is have people understand it. Look, if you live in the western part of the state, part of that heritage is not simply the Scots-Irish coming to that area, but also the language that they brought to the area. And that's part of the heritage every bit as much as the artifacts, the cultural you know, manifestations and arts and so forth. That's what we're trying to do with students. So what kinds of regional dialect changes are taking place right now? What's really happening to the South is in big cities like um, Raleigh and Greensboro and uh, Charlotte. And what's happening there is you see a leveling effect where a lot of the dialect features are receding. But there still are lots of Southern vowels that can be sort of reconfigured or realized in ways that indicate Southern identity, but in a much more subtle way than they once did. Do you think that's happening in other areas of the country? Do you think maybe the U.S. as a whole is moving toward one accent? No, actually, the fact of the matter is that northern dialects are becoming more different from southern dialects. There's a shift that's taking place in cities like Chicago and Detroit and Cleveland and so forth. So, so what we have is we have in these northern cities shifts in the vowels, and they're actually becoming more different from southern vowels and southern pronunciation. Well, that's all the questions we've got for you today. Thanks for spending the time to interview with us. Thanks. It's a lot of fun, too. Brian the Triangle. I'm Nick. And I'm Dave. And that's our show for this week. I want to thank you guys all for joining us. I want to thank our contributors, Nick, Dave, Nate, Katie Costa, Mark Herring, Selma, and everyone else who does great work every week here on the show. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Triangle and beyond. So please join us next week on Tuesday from 7 to 8 p.m. And I will be going now, but I'm making way for DJ J, who will be on very shortly. So stay tuned to WKNC, the greatest radio station ever.